Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, February 21st, day 138 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our legal reporter Jeremy Sharon and reporter Kanan Lidor. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Hi. Israel is again on the docket at the International Court of Justice. We'll hear about the ongoing hearings there. Jeremy will also tell us about the arrest of an internationally known Palestinian artist. Kanan is here and will learn about his recent trips throughout Israel's war zones in the north and south, as well as one of the most heroic stories from October 7th that I've heard so far. All this and much, much more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. First, some headlines. Syria's state-run Sana news agency reported Israeli warplanes fired missiles at a Damascus apartment building from over the Golan Heights. Two civilians are reported dead and another injured in this morning's alleged Israeli strike in Damascus. An Israeli official told the Times of Israel that no decision has yet been made to send a delegation to Cairo for further talks on a hostage release deal. Earlier today, a Saudi newspaper reported that an Israeli delegation would be in Cairo within hours. The IDF confirmed has launched a new large-scale raid on Gaza City's Zaytun neighborhood, killing Hamas operatives and locating weapons in the process, while troops continue to battle the terror group in southern Gaza's Khan Yunus. The IDF announced the death of Staff Sergeant Avraham Wovagen, killed during fighting in the northern Gaza Strip yesterday, bringing the toll of slain troops in the ground offensive against Hamas to 237. Monday saw the start of six days of hearings in The Hague's International Court of Justice over the UN General Assembly's request for an advisory opinion by the ICJ on the, quote, legal consequences of Israel's 56-year rule in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Jeremy, tell us what we're hearing so far. Well, uh, day one, which was Monday, uh, was basically three hours of the representatives of the Palestinian Authority um, explaining, uh, you know, all the ills and evils of Israel's uh, um, military uh, occupation of the West Bank, as as they would have it. Um, and really, Israel was accused of every one of the worst crimes possible: uh, apartheid, colonialism, ethnic cleansing, genocide. You know, the, the 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 Palestinians really threw the book at Israel. 
And essentially what, what they want uh, from this proceeding is a dec- essentially a declaration by the court that the military occupation of the West Bank is is illegal. Um, because, of course, uh, military occupations are are not inherently illegal. They are legal and are, uh, you know, kind of um, specified and regulated under the laws of international uh, international law. Um, but what the Palestinians want and what their central argument is, is that this um, Israeli rule in the West Bank has gone on for so long that it kind of violates a, a fundamental principle of international law, um, as they would have it, that an occupation has to be temporary. Other aspects such as comments by senior Israeli uh, ministers, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, that um, they want to either annex parts of the West Bank or they never want to relinquish parts of it. And in fact, even uh, the the guiding principles document of the current coalition, which says that the entire land of Israel, including, uh, as it says, Judea and Samaria, which is a term used for the West Bank, is uh, you know, is is only um, is, is is uniquely a, a Jewish land, and and that uh, the state of Israel seeks to settle all parts of that land. That these are these are all things which the representatives of the Palestinians brought up in court to to, to demonstrate that uh, they do not believe that um, this is a, a, meant to be a temporary occupation, but 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 in fact a permanent occupation designed to, you know, never allow the Palestinians to have their own state or self determination. As I understand it, the pylon is continuing, but Israel has decided not to respond officially. Is that correct? Yes, Israel hasn't sent a delegation, and that, this is because this is not um, a, whatever comes out of this uh, of, the, of these hearings. The advisory opinion will not be legally binding because it was it's a referral from the UN General Assembly, uh, and not a dispute between uh, Israel and, and the Palestinians, which Israel you know d- d- refuses to uh, to to accept. So. Um, Israel did submit a very brief submission to the court um, uh, explaining its position very briefly, but it has not sent a delegation there and most of its arguments are, are not being heard. Having said that, the uh, the US um, is presenting uh, um, oral arguments today in a, in, a, in a short while and is expected to, uh, to make some uh, defense of uh, Israel's position. Please check out the website for more updates on this issue. Yesterday, the Israel Judicial Selection Committee met and appointed judges for the first time in a very long time. Very briefly, Jeremy, how did this meetup actually come about finally? Well, the Judicial Selection Committee has actually met several times since October. It met uh, November and then a few times since. And uh, yesterday was the first time judicial appointments have been made in nearly two years, uh, for sure the first time in this government. And essentially it happened because of uh, uh, legal pressure against uh, Justice Minister Yerif Levin, who had refused until until now to make appointments. Um, But the kind of petitions to the High Court against his position basically forced his hand. So um, from what I hear from the committee, it's actually functioning relatively normally um, as as far as can be expected, given everything that's gone on before. And yes, uh, 10 judges were appointed, seven to the Haifa, uh, um, uh, three to the Nazareth District Court and seven to the Haifa District Court. And uh, next week, there's um, more more appointments uh, expected for the for, for Israel's um, magistrates' courts. So uh, the the huge number of uh, of vacancies, judicial vacancies on the courts around the country, are now uh, going to start being filled as a result of uh, the resumption of somewhat normal activity of the committee. Of course, there are also two vacancies on the Supreme Court. Do we know when and if these will be filled as well? So, no, there is no 
there, there, no date has been set to deliberate on those uh, vacancies. Uh, when you make appointments to the lower courts, then the uh, the way that those appointments are made in the committee gives the government and the coalition uh, in the current constellation of the committee greater greater influence. But you need more members of the committee to appoint uh, Supreme Court judges. And in fact, the liberal representatives are outweigh right now the, the government representatives on the committee. So, so Levin is still kind of dragging his feet on that. Um, and in fact, we, we know from a recent um, response by the Attorney General to, uh, to, a, to a petition that Levin still is, um, you know, uh, is, is still hopeful at some stage that he'll be able to change the composition of the Judicial Selection Committee, which was in fact one of the most contentious aspects of the judicial overhaul uh, agenda, which we saw, you know, explode uh, in Israel back in 2023. Let's turn to a story that you did in which a Palestinian artist who has in the past exhibited with renowned Chinese artist A. Weiwei was arrested last week during a search conducted by an IDF reservist battalion looking for weapons in a West Bank Bedouin village. Tell us about this case, Jeremy. What we saw in, in this village of Um Al-Khir uh, in the South Hebron Hills is something which has really been repeated over and over again in in that region and in other parts of the West Bank, where Israeli forces, uh, and, and we're talking about actually forces which have been mobilized since uh, October 7th and, and are kind of reserve forces, but, but, but even at a slightly lower level than the regular reservists, conduct these kind of um, uh, search, search raids on uh, Palestinian villages, supposedly looking for weapons. But often they turn up either no weapons at all or some very, you know, kind of some far, like they, 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 the, the IDF shows subsequently farming implements and which are supposed to be uh, offensive weapons. And a lot of times the, um, the, the Palestinians complain that these are forms of harassment, especially against these vulnerable Bedouin communities, um, which, uh, which have caused large numbers of them, over a thousand, uh, thousand people in about 15 communities to actually leave some of these communities. So what happened uh, last Tuesday was this, this artist, his name is uh, Eid uh, Talin, and he was, uh, the, 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 this, this IDF reserve force uh, raided Um Al-Khir. They turned lots of houses upside down looking for weapons. They didn't find any weapons at all. But they, when they came to this artist's home, they found uh, quite a lot of money and they found computers and, and, and uh, cameras and so on, which were related to his, his artistic work. They handcuffed him. They blindfolded him. They took him away. Uh, he was he, he was several hours on a nearby military base um, without his family being able to contact him. Eventually, uh, he turned up in this in, in the nearby police station in Kiryat Arba and uh, he, he was he was questioned and, and later released and then he was brought back for questioning and released again and and no charges were brought against him um, and uh, you know his 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 situation came to prominence because he is a well-known artist and lots of people started inquiring as to where he was and people contacted me to uh, and, and i started contacting the police and actually the police on the second day of questioning were started asking him why so many people interested in in in, in you what you have to do um and and why you've been arrested and he explained you know he's an activist he's an artist he's exhibited as as you said with uh, ai weiwei um, that was back in 2016. Ai Weiwei actually came to Israel and met with uh, Hatalin in uh, in his village, and then subsequently invited him to exhibit with, exhibit in in Berlin. So the, the police were surprised, and and it, this guy was released very quickly. 
but that's not always the case. And, and in fact, a very similar incident happened just this Monday, um, where two Palestinians in another rural village in South Hebron Hills were arrested. And uh, actually, they remain two of, two of them remain under arrest. Uh, they'll be they'll be in detention for at least eight days. Um, but they are not well-known uh, Palestinian artists, um, and, uh, and and again, this this was uh, another raid by IDF uh, uh, reserve forces looking for supposedly looking for weapons in in you know a really small, tiny uh, hamlet, uh, and uh, and I think this story which which I wrote about in uh, involving uh, Talin is indicative of, of what is happening in these communities right now. Jeremy, thank you so much for these updates, and we'll say goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye, Amanda. We'll get to a short break. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Nan, you were in Kiryat Shmona yesterday, and we still haven't had a chance to discuss what you saw there. Also, you were in Spat last week. So tell us a little bit about what's happening on the northern border, essentially. Right. And Kiryat Shmona is right up there, about two kilometers from the border itself, very visible and with direct line of sight. Uh, Kiryat Shmona and, and Spat are two different stories. Kiryat Shmona is a ghost town. The first thing you notice when you come there is um, the empty buses. I- I'm... I'm t- talking about the buses inside the city uh they're still servicing no one and when you walk you kind of come across one group of 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 people which is uh, evacuees who are coming back for their extra clothes or trying to gear up on um kitchen utensils so they they you see them with a big trolleys and they rely on public transportation to get in and out of Kirachmona. It has pretty de- decent connection. And then you have the stayers who constitute, I think, about 20% of the population of about 23,000. And these are people often from kind of the weakest rungs of society uh, that decided to stay. It's not only the elderly and other people who feel you know, also with emotional issues. It's not only them who stay. Uh, it's also uh, people who, who work in Kiryat Shmona and uh, a lot of people who are just deeply attached to their homes and refuse to leave. One of them is um, Natalie Eitan, a mother of three, who just divides her time between the, her hotel in Batyam, apartment hotel, 
and her home in Kiyashima only because it's the only place where she can feel at home. So she, she shuttles between Kiyashima and Tel Aviv. Uh, she spends about half her time in Kiyashima. Uh, I got a, um, a short introduction into the various sounds and echoes of Kiyashima uh, from uh, the only employee of a liquor store, the only open liquor store in Kiyashima, who told me if you hear a whistle and then the bang it's probably an anti-tank uh missile if you hear the echo and then the thud it's probably outbound israeli artillery and if you hear a salvo you'll know <laughs> so uh they already cataloged these sounds because so many rockets have been fired at kiachmona uh, and other cities and towns in the in the north in the hundreds right about now You visited Svat last week, Safed, right after the unfortunate tragic death of a soldier after the rocket barrages. And you found there as well that people are not about to uproot themselves. Right. In fact, just a couple of hours, a lady who was uh, strolling along the uh, street of um, Ibiku, that's the northernmost neighborhood of Svat and the most at-risk one. Uh, so she was, she was out strolling Uh, the, the trails because it's on the mountain uh, like two hours after the the deadly salvo hit and that's in her case it was because she was a former kibbutznik from Hulata who grew up being constantly bombed by the Syrian artillery so there's a tradition in the north there's also a deep attachment to um to Tzfat specifically, because it's it's one of the four holy cities of Israel. And that, that means a lot to many residents. And um, you haven't seen the sort of uh, evacuation, also because Tzfat isn't entitled to government-afforded accommodations, of course. Uh, but even in those cities that aren't yet are targeted by terrorist organizations like Ashkelon, you, you noticed, uh, you, you, you see now uh, a, a drop in the population because people find... Or, or at least found until a month ago, you know, accommodations with family or they, they just make it work somehow. So in Sfat, none of this happened. A bustling city. Uh, there's um, a, a very, very pronounced esprit de corps. Early in the week, this week, you accompanied the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, their first delegation to the south of Israel since October 7th. And the story you wrote about Eran Masas and his heroic deeds during the Hamas massacre just had me crying while I was editing it. Really, I was in tears. So tell our listeners who he is and what he did that day. So the, the Conference of Presidents, the umbrella group of, of major Jewish organizations, they brought the first delegation to the South since uh, the war. And they put together uh, a program based on meetings with survivors uh, and, uh, and people who lived through the attack with two objectives in mind. One, to really to give a full-spectrum picture of resilience and the 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 terrible misery that the attack means to hundreds of families to this day. And the other objective was to document, because the more the, the war progresses and the more Israel is under attack in international fora, like we just heard from Jeremy, uh, the more denialism, subversion, um, distortion of, of, the, of the material from the October 7 onslaught. Uh, just before we left to the Re'im, 
party ground of the Supernova Music Festival, we met with a person who introduced himself as a regular guy from Kiryat Atta, from near Haifa. And he told this remarkable story of self-reliance, of um, heroism under fire, and um, the assumption of responsibility, a big issue in Israeli politics right now. And uh, he uh, recounted how he woke up on uh, early in the morning in, on October 7th, and with this compulsion upon seeing the images of Hamas pickup trucks in Sderot, upon seeing those images, uh, with the compulsion, um, he described as insane need uh, to go there and and stop it. So he drove. Uh, he's a retired uh, lieutenant colonel, you know, mid mid level management in the ladder of uh, of the army, and um, was discharged two years ago. And um, he was just a regular citizen at that point. Took his car, drove two hundred kilometers to Sderot, um, but on the way, on this mission to stop the pickup trucks of Hamas, he started seeing survivors of the Supernova Festival, uh, not realizing what their story was, um, and they were just roaming the place, shell-shocked, and in deep distress, not knowing what to do. He kind of shepherded them into uh, Moshev Patish and assumed command. He told them, I am the commanding officer of this sector which was a totally lie before that he told his wife he lied to his wife that the army had basically called him where he was to- acting totally on his on his own um, initiative and uh, he he took those kids into mushav patish and he lied again he told them the buses will be here within half an hour there were no buses he had no idea what was going on then he went outside to try and arrange transportation he said he saw three buses whom he immediately stopped there were arguments with the drivers eventually he got the drivers to take those survivors to Beersheva and at that point he started going around the killing fields of the supernova uh, festival grounds near Reim where 364 people uh, were murdered by Hamas terrorists and he just encountered those bodies the first one he encountered was a, a young young woman he referred to as the lady in green because to this point to this day doesn't know her name uh, and she was uh, almost naked uh, and he apologized to her dead body for having to touch her for having to see her in the situation at that point he broke down in tears while he was talking to us um, while he was speaking to us because he that th- he said it made him think of his own daughters and at that point I don't think there was a um, a dry eye in the audience and from then on he he kind of described how he assumed this identity of the officer in charge because he felt a need for it by the survivors and um, and just acted on it and uh, without knowing at that point that others like him uh, Yair Golan for example uh, reserves um, major general was doing exactly the same thing just driving there and extracting people from the Nova so to this message it resonated with uh, his American listeners in a way that I'd never uh, witnessed before. Uh, people were crying, and, and there was just an outpouring of emotion. And it also kind of counterbalanced the the trauma of October seven because it showed how it showed what Israelis are made of that they rise to this occasion and that. The, the vacuum and chaos they form their own source of authority and and um, take command of the situation 
Kanan, you've got me again with the story. <laughs> Tears in my eyes again. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have a comment or question about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. <laughs>